Deadwood Soundwell. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Not safe for network. I'm Biggs. And I'm Brandon. Okay, let's just start out. You had some news on uh, somebody dying. Yeah, so Martha De Laurentiis passed away age 49 a couple days ago. She was mostly famous for doing produce work on most of anything that has to do with the Hannibal Lecter franchise. Yeah, so I'm. is she the widow of Dino De Laurentiis? Yes. Okay, so she must control his entire arm of stuff. So that's a pretty big library. We're talking about like... King Kong, like the 76 version. We're talking about Army of Darkness, but not the other Evil Dead movies. I think they have Evil Dead 2, but not the rights to anything in Evil Dead 2, but they have the rights to the Army of Darkness stuff. Right. Which is why they had to kind of creep around it with uh, Ash versus Evil Dead. They have Hannibal stuff, but not Manhunter. They can't do anything with Clarice Starling for some reason. Or no, no, they have Clarice. I'm sorry. They have Clarice Starling. They don't have Manhunter. I got that in reverse. Um, yeah, that's stuff off the top of my head. Yeah. They, they had a lot of shit. So she started off work with uh, Stephen King's Firestarter. She was a producer on that. So she did the 2001 film Hannibal, Red Dragon, Hannibal Rising, executive producer of the NBC run of Hannibal. So she was married to Dino De Laurentiis. And then, and then he died. Yeah, and yeah. then two kids, uh, Dina De Laurentiis and Carolina. Oh, there was one we forgot, Flash Gordon. Yeah. Yeah, that's a De Laurentiis joint. A lot of work we, re- we respect around here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I respect Flash Gordon, but I fucking love it. <laughs> Part of loving it is not respecting it, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I love every wrong choice that they made in that movie. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, exactly. And they've been working on doing another Flash Gordon movie, too. Yeah. It's been a problem. It's been a lot of problems. At a certain point you had Matthew Vaughn attached to it. He was writing something and looking to direct. He wound up dropping out. Take Iwaititi took over for him. And Take Iwaititi was going to make, as was Matthew Vaughn, a direct sequel to the 1980 Flash Gordon. But then he dropped out because, honestly, he's just so tied in with Disney now. I think he knows which side his bread's buttered on, you know? And he works. Oh, dude, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's producing reservation dogs he's got a star wars movie on the way of course he's making thor love and thunder like yeah that dude's got a lot on his plate coming up there's a lot of stuff i'm not even thinking of too i'm sure but um not to mention producing how we uh, what, what we, we do, do in the shadows yeah so he's got a lot so that basically means a lot of things that were planned might drop out and a lot of things might suddenly become available or maybe the kids if or whoever takes over de Laurentiis winds up selling it off this could be really really interesting in terms of ip because they have a lot of crazy ip so yeah that's just some of the stuff we listed i mean de Laurentiis was producing for a long long time so at least since the 70s if not earlier yeah so that's going to be interesting so tom holland gave another interview a while ago and 
he said a lot of stuff. He was discounting a lot of rumors and stuff. And like, I'm just throwing that in the trash bin. I don't care. <laughs> like, they they have to deny certain things because they have to deny certain things, you know. But uh, he was saying he'd like to see a Spider-Man mentor in the next movies. And uh, he's thinking it's time for some new Spider-Man. So he was talking about maybe having a mentor, Miles Morales or Silk or Jackpot. So I know nothing about Jackpot at all. So I'm not going to speak to it, but we've talked about Silk a little bit. And at a certain point, Sony decided to make a Silk movie. And I haven't heard word on that for a long time, but that makes me wonder if he's saying that. I wonder if Sony's in his ears, like talking about like drop Silk. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they're obviously doing some deals to kind of get some stuff done in Sony in addition to the MCU stuff. So I don't know if it'll tie in or not. I'm guessing probably not. But it's kind of interesting. And then Kevin Feige was doing an interview a little while ago. And he dropped a quote that said, if you were to see Daredevil and upcoming things, Charlie Cox, yes, would be the actor playing Daredevil. Where we see that, how we see that, when we see that remains to be seen. Right. I read that quote as well. I have that on my list. The way that I read that and the way I was reading him trying to temper expectations about Spider-Man No Way Home, I read it as Daredevil's not in this movie. Yeah, I get that same feeling. I think if he's coming back, I think She-Hulk's going to be the vehicle we see him in maybe everybody's like hanging on the lawyer thing maybe i don't know i don't doubt daredevil's gonna come back he's so popular and i think kevin feige recognizes that like it would be good to get daredevil back in the marvel universe it's the one netflix show that doesn't have any shine rubbed off of it like i really liked all the seasons of jessica jones but i know some people were really infatuated with the first season and kind of fell off but daredevil is the one that just like it, it never slipped like everybody really likes it and i mean we're getting kingpin <laughs> and yeah and hawkeye like that's not questionable like i heard the laugh and it was vincent d'onofrio's laugh and we saw a little bit of the suit so i'm just like that's fucking kingpin like there's no question in my mind and wasn't fisk name dropped in there somewhere somewhere along the line i didn't catch it the echo character in the comics her uncle was actually killed by kingpin it was basically set up by king pin to make it look like daredevil did it and in hawkeye they set it up to look like ronan did it right yeah so i'm guessing that probably wilson fisk had that suit at some point and i'm guessing he's attached to somebody in hawkeye which if i was to guess right now having seen episode four today which we'll probably talk about later in the episode as well with carl i'm guessing that it's probably vera farmiga's character like i think kate bishop's mom is tied in with some people there's been some villain names thrown around that she could be potentially but I, I think she's definitely connected to Fisk somehow. I mean she was at that fucking auction with the stepdad so I'm pretty sure. Did you watch the newest episode? I've seen all four. Okay. Alright. So we get to talk about. Yeah. Did you hear us talking to you last week? <laughs> yes. Yes I did. <laughs> I was wondering when I saw that message come across. <laughs> you didn't really hear us did you? No I no. don't. We basically said we weren't going to allow you to talk about Hawkeye until you were caught up on Hawkeye. <laughs> yeah. All right. So go ahead. Give your negative opinion of it because I know you're not a fan. So No, I have – and I've watched all four episodes. And so there's a couple of things I have issue with. Okay. The first off is some of the fight scenes are garbage. 
Okay, give me an example. The fight scene in the at the auction and then the follow beyond that. Like end of the street and everything? Yeah. So you're not impressed with watching somebody who's never fought crime fight crime suddenly? That doesn't bother me. It's the fact that I have no fucking clue who's fighting who and who to root for. And it's just like this dark person's fighting this dark person. And punches are thrown, kicks and whatever. And it's just... The key to that one is the person with the Ronin outfit is who you're rooting for. <laughs> But it's just a black suit in a black street. I mean, it's yeah. it's okay. It's the same. One of the main issues I have with Arrow, like who the fuck's fighting and why do I care? Okay, that scene really like soured me a lot on that show. Okay, I'll give it to you for the visual because it is dark and I think it's intentionally dark because they're trying to hide a lot of things. I mean, it's just a practical thing to make it easier. Make moves look impressive when you're like five feet off of somebody's head when you throw a punch. It looks more realistic when it's a little bit dark. But point taken, Marvel should be better at that. Uh, Disagree with the why should I care? Like, we spent time with Kate Bishop like a lot of time before that fight and like, I actually cared about Kate Bishop, dude. No, like, then that... Are you coming from the Hawkeye angle where you just like can't stand her? No. We first see her as like a, a child and like you see the Hawkeyes beating up the Chitari. Right. And that little girl that they had played young Kate Bishop is fucking awful. <laughs> that was probably the worst acting I've seen in Marvel. Really? It was god awful it was something out of like a spanish soap opera like throwing herself around the room and it was oh it was i didn't like it okay okay the other issue i have is the third episode where they we really get to know echo and they really focus on hearing impairment and as somebody who is hearing impaired i couldn't hear anything in that <laughs> and it, it really bothered me like, you do know? when 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 echo and her uncle were talking back and forth and signing they would have the subtitles for mm-hmm. echo but not for the dad and he was mouthing the words but at such a low volume you couldn't hear what he was saying so you only got half the dialogue interesting did you ever think about turning on subtitles i did i i have okay. i watched okay. so about 10 15 minutes into the third episode i'm like i can't hear a fucking word they're saying i had the volume like way past where i normally listen to it and i understand what they were saying okay. so i turned on the subtitles titles after that knowing your hearing loss noted like that's just a problem that i didn't have but i can see how that would bother you for sure yeah they're low talking throughout a lot of that they're episode. low talking uh hawkeye is really bad at he mumbles a yes, lot yes he does that's Always. Like, yeah. he's he's the kind of quiet, like, mumbly kind of guy, for sure. I think that's just kind of Jeremy Renner in general. Yeah, I think so. I've seen him in other stuff, and he, he – I mean, he's not really doing a different voice. But, yeah, I, I can see how that would drive you crazy. And you understand why that's not an issue for me, right? <laughs> Like, I, I heard everything totally fine, so – but I get it. And then – oh, so I was watching the fourth episode today, and – they have they were fighting on the rooftop and they dropped that flashbang arrow. Yeah. And I felt really bad because 
I couldn't hear anything. Like, they had the whole, like, even in the subtitles, it says, like, heavy ringing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's the usual. So it's a sonic arrow is what she shot. That flash, I think, was just to indicate an arrow went off because it's, once again, a nighttime. But uh, it was clearly a sonic thing. They did So they do the noise that you can never hear. We've well established on the <laughs> podcast that because of your, what, tinnitus, yeah. you can't hear that noise that they always represent. The, it's a very high-pitched noise. And I would make the noise for you right now, Mike, but you wouldn't hear it. So, you know, what's the point? But, <laughs> Other uh, than to torture our listeners. Yeah, but you're, you're well aware that the noise is being dropped because we've talked about it. Anytime, like, a bomb goes off or something and you can't hear anything, all of a sudden it's that super high-pitched noise that they do to represent that, like, somebody's hearing is fucked. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Either that or it's literally just being drowned out by the noise that's already in my head. It is ironic that somebody with tinnitus can't hear the noise that it's supposed to represent that I can't hear. <laughs> <laughs> like it does exactly what it's supposed to do. <laughs> like if if you're a normally hearing audience member, you like know that that sound cues what's going on. But for you, it literally does what happens to the character, which is they can't hear. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I get that. There was no dialogue that I remember. It was just a noise. So yeah, uh, what'd you think about Florence Pugh showing up? She was badass, and I'm interesting to see what where sh- her character's going. I had a theory before it started that she wasn't actually going to go and fight Clint. That she was just going to have Clint. She was basically there to sign him up because I heard somebody say that after Black Widow. And I was like, oh, yeah, you could frame that conversation that way. Like it's everybody assumed she was going after him, but it did seem like you could frame it in that manner. Yeah, that idea is out the window now. (laughs) She's clearly going after him. So I'm guessing that uh, somebody hired like probably Wilson Fisk hired Julia Louise Dreyfus's character to to put a hit on Clint. And so that's where she brings it down with with the Florence Pugh Black Widow, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was very happy to see her come in sooner rather than later because you know they're going to be on the same side soon enough. So and Echo is definitely going to turn because she's a hero in the comics and that's how her origin is is like she thinks daredevil killed her uncle and then it turns out to be the kingpin so i think they're just subbing out hawkeye for this she's got a disney plus show coming down the pike like they announced that on disney plus day so you can assume that she's gonna team up with hawkeye so we're looking at hawkeye kate bishop the the new hawkeye we're looking at black widow that's four yeah. that's that's a pretty formidable team right we got two episodes left that's gonna happen sooner so rather it's only than a later. six episode series yeah yeah so I think that's going to happen sooner rather than later. I'm sure we're going to see the kingpin at top. And who is the kingpin hiring to fight him, you know? Because that's going to happen eventually, too. So I'm kind of curious where that's going to go. I'm just happy we got Vinny D back in Hawkeye. Like, that's great, dude. Like, Vincent yeah. D'Onofrio fucking killed Kingpin. It was almost like he ate himself into that shape <laughs> so that he could be awesome with Kingpin. Like, he was just, like, looking at the MCU in 2012 and was just like... I think I'm going to have thirds on dinner tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I could do this. Someday it's going to happen because he didn't understand like the Spider-Man rights or anything. He ate everything Chris Pratt gave up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Him and Chris Pratt are roommates apparently. Like when he got kicked out from Anna Faris. Like, yeah, he just uh, shacked up with Vinny D and it's amazing. (laughs) That's such a good joke. Uh, anything else strike you about Hawkeye? Just the series in general? No. 
Like, there's been some, I mean, I'm not going to completely shit on Hawkeye. Like, there's some fun stuff. I was wondering if we were going to get to that. Because I get, like, it's not my favorite Disney Plus show. But I'm also like, it is fun. Like, it does feel like a 90s Shane Black movie, honestly. Like, it it feels like that to me. So I'm enjoying it. Like, you have the two partners and they don't get along, but they like each other. It's Christmas time. There's, like, stuff exploding everywhere. I'm all about it. Dude, I loved watching him with the quarter, like flipping it. I heard we're doing that in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's more of a Marvel thing, to be clear. But uh, to be fair, though, Lethal Weapon, like Riggs goes running after a car in bare feet and catches it. So <laughs> is that. he wasn't too far off as of superheroes if you think about where we were in the 80s. Because there was not very many superheroes in the 80s. No. We had uh, Superman 3, Superman 4... Batman. I don't know what else, dude. There's not a lot. Yeah, even <laughs> even the shitty Marvel was 1990, I think. Oh, Howard the Duck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first MCU movie. We had Dolph Lundgren Punisher. I was trying to think of DC and I was like, nope, that's a dead end. DC didn't do anything in the 80s except for the Superman movies and Batman. Then when they tried to expand it a little bit, it was shit like Steel with Shaq. Yeah, and that was the 90s for sure. (laughs) So... All right, well, let's move on. Oh, something else Kevin Feige was saying, since we're still on Marvel here. He was talking in the interview saying what Brubaker and Fraction did with the immortal Iron Fist is amazing. So Iron Fist has been trending all over since that happened. And there's speculation like, are they going to bring back Danny Rand? If they do, are they going to recast Finn Jones? Because it seems like there's exactly zero people rooting for (laughs) Finn Jones to like reprise Iron Fist if they do it. I think they should bring him back. And I think they should recast him. I'm just going to put that out there. I didn't watch any of that show, so... Yeah, and they got a lot of black eyes for not having an Asian dude the first time. Maybe cast an Asian guy this time, but I don't know because, once again, it's dicey territory. Like, are you only going to have Asian characters who are martial artists in the MCU? You know what I mean? Yeah. There's other things you can do. Like, they have Amadeus Cho is Hulk now in the comics, so... You could always do that if you want to diversify and get more Asian people in there, which is not a bad idea. But um, And then he also revealed that after Venom was a hit in the MCU, the studio reached out to Sony and started working on a way to have them merge because he saw that fans were all about Venom. And so he was like, Venom's tied to Spider-Man. We should make this work somehow. This particular one, I think is bullshit. I think he's saying things in a way that makes it sound like the MCU was like super happy to merge with Venom. But we all heard the fucking rumblings. It was like Sony was willing to tank their partnership. And part of it was like they wanted to build Venom into the MCU. So I don't believe him on this front. (laughs) I really don't. I think that was all part of the negotiations was like Sony was like, you need to like take these other superhero properties we're developing and at least let us cross over somehow. That's my theory on it. You still haven't seen Venom Let There Be Carnage, have you? No. Okay. Well, I will just tell you they tie it in with the MCU definitively in that movie. So like Venom is now a part of the MCU, whether you like it or not. (laughs) I don't have a problem with it. I do. I have a big, big problem. That's an awful character, the way that Sony does it. And I just don't like it being attached to like the MCU. That's me. I'm kind of done with Venom anyway. 
if I'm being honest, like some of the stuff they've done with him in the comics is fun, but that's not the direction Sony's going at all. They're basically like, what if a garbage heap was superhero? It's basically what they're doing. So uh, let there be carnage is so fucking awful, dude. It's so bad. You might like it. I don't know, but it's it's terrible. <laughs> Wait till you see it, man. Don't pay any money. <laughs> so George Perez has an inoperable tumor in his pancreas and his life expectancy is six months to a year. Um, that's really sad. So George Perez is an artist for Marvel and DC. A couple of things he did. Final Crisis, which I have up on my bookshelf. That's one of the biggest stories. It's probably the biggest story that has uh, uh, DC's Thanos. Um, what's his name? Dark Side. Yeah. Which, like... I have a feeling Zack Snyder was going to take elements of it if he had continued in the DCEU. And then he also was the artist on the Infinity Gauntlet. That's a story everybody's somewhat familiar with at this point, right? Yeah, pretty much almost everybody. Yeah, <laughs> at this point. By the way, did you notice uh, in episode four of Hawkeye, Clint was drinking from a purple mug that said Thanos was right? No, I didn't see that. Yeah, I, it didn't show the whole thing, but I saw enough of it where I was like, oh, I love that. And he has no idea. <laughs> like, he's just <laughs> drinking out of a cup. Awkward. <laughs> so Colin Farrell will reprise the Penguin in his own HBO Max show following the Batman. What do you think about this? Like, they're kind of doing this with Peacemaker, right? Like, that follows the Suicide Squad. Apparently they're doing the same treatment with the Batman. We haven't seen the Penguin yet, so obviously we can't fully judge this, and yet I'm going to throw out my opinion. What's your opinion on this? My opinion is I don't have one at this point. I haven't seen enough to give a honest opinion one way or another. I mean, we've seen like 20 seconds of the Penguin at this point. Yeah. It's hard to make a judgment call on 20 seconds. I'm going to say don't do it. Don't do it. Have it fall through. Don't do it. You know why? What about the Penguin makes a TV series that you want to watch? I mean, if it was Danny DeVito as the Penguin. Nope, it's not. It's Colin (laughs) Farrell's. So he's a gun runner. He's a bad guy. Why do we want to follow this guy for like six to eight episodes, you know? I don't know. I don't think we do want to follow him. And I think about the way that Gotham tried to go. And I'm just like, I'm really tired of Batman stories without Batman, if I'm being honest. Like, the CW has been doing that for a long, long time. And I just don't need to see the elevated version of it on HBO Max. Don't do it, man. Stop it. (laughs) Just stop it. (laughs) They're going to do it anyway. I'm just saying, like, I don't know. I don't know about this. Maybe if the Batman bombs, they won't. But And, you know, it, and it could be one of those things that maybe he turns out entertaining, like bring something that's interesting to watch. Or, you know, it's like a Godfather sort of thing. Like we get like crime syndicate. God damn it. Yeah, I just talked you back into it a little bit, didn't I? You bastard, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) You just had to drop Godfather. I just listened to your episode so of a cosmic void. So is that the one that's up right now? Um, no, it's part two. Yeah, so when part we record, two is up. When we record this, it'll actually be Gremlins that's up right now. But uh, yeah, the God, the Godfather, and the Godfather two. We did those back to back, dude. Those were long ass episodes too. Yeah, they were. Yeah, that's why I haven't listened to the Carl talking at me. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, our network's getting kind of jam-packed. We got Real War Project, which is like 
I love that podcast. It's tough to keep up with it. I sometimes finish my final touch of editing on it before I send it off, having not listened to it, because I do very cursory editing on it. I slap a commercial on it, the Redwood Sound Labs bumper, and make the artwork for it, and then I put it up. And I try to listen to it before I put it up, but some of those episodes are like two and a half hours long, man. (laughs) I'm not underplaying that. Like, some of them are two and a half hours long, and it's never boring. It's not like they're going over, like, bad ground. It's just like, it's a lot, dude. We have a lot on our network right now. We got five shows, four that are going every week. I think Dippers is really the only like quick listen that we have because Dippers is typically like 25 minutes to like 42 minutes, somewhere around there. Which speaking of which, next week, Lauren O'Neill from Dippers is going to be on a Cosmic Void. So you should check that out. We talk about Love Actually and she hates it and we hated it too. So if you hate Love Actually, you should listen to it. And if you love Love Actually, I mean, listen to it and just get upset at us. (laughs) It's, It's great either way. Have you ever seen that movie? No. I had never even heard of it until we were podcasting with Zach back in the Montucky Skies days. We were talking about Walking Dead and he made a joke that he thought it was a Love Actually reunion because there's like the guy who played Rick like holds up all the signs, all the cue cards in uh, Love Actually. That's like, actually, I think you're perfect. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's Rick going Carl on a cue card right there. Uh, and there was somebody else who's in love, actually, that just showed up for an episode or two. So he was making that joke. And then I occasionally saw the meme that, that that's out there with the cue cards where people will write different stuff on it, you know? Yeah, and SNL has done parodies of it. And... Mm-hmm. That's all I knew about the movie. So I was fucking weirded out watching that movie first off had no idea it was a british movie no idea whatsoever and you watch it and you're you're like oh there's 25 characters in it and like 23 of them are british you know dude it's a terrible movie (laughs) but it's really fun to make fun of so enough of plug order yeah that's what it devolved into wasn't it uh Destin Daniel Creighton will direct Shang-Chi 2 and a yet-to-be-named Disney Plus series. So that's the guy who did Shang-Chi, obviously. Um, I'm excited that Shang-Chi did well enough that they're getting another one because I really like the first one. And I'm interested what they're going to do for Disney Plus with him because is that an indication they're doing more Shang-Chi or is that an indication they're doing something else? I'm guessing they're probably pulling him into something else. I think so. I, I mean, I, they re- at the end of Shang-Chi, they really gave the... Bringing him into the the greater fold of the world. Yeah. I'm guessing people are going to like throw out Iron Fist, but I'm going to poo-poo that one because I remember reading him like being excited when he was offered something in the MCU and then realizing that it was like a Kung Fu thing. And he spent his entire life trying to distance himself from uh, stereotypical Asian things and then started to really look at it and think there's a way to do this that would be better. But I don't think he wants to do that on on top of doing two Shang-Chi movies. You know what I mean? I'm betting it's something else, but I don't know. We'll see. Uh, the Writers Guild Association ranked out their top 101 screenplays of all time. So so I put the 25 here. I'm just going to read them out in order and you like give a yay or nay and why if you want. So these are the 25 what now? This is the top 101 screenplays of all time that they put it. But I don't think that's correct because I'm looking at this. I think it's for the 2000s. It must be for the 2000s. So I think I might have wrote that part down wrong. But the rest of it I cut and pasted. So don't worry. So yeah, we're going to say top 101 screenplays of the 2000s. So number one, get out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No question there. Uh, The only one I might think is better written is 
very close on the list. So it's just a matter of semantics. But I love Get Out. Like, it's so fucking good. Number two, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. That's a great written script. Like, it's super complicated, but, like, not hard to follow. You know what I mean? It's, (laughs) and we've tried on that, like, it's, I remember being really confused by it, but then I'm like, if you take the weed out of the equation, it's pretty right. easy to follow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a big Charlie Kaufman conversation when we were talking about adaptation a while ago. Yeah, and I think that was the what you came to. <laughs> okay, number three, The Social Network. Fucking yes, dude. That movie is amazing. I, I remember watching it and thinking like, wow, that's really good. It's probably the best movie, and it probably won't win because it's about Facebook and Facebook is still a relatively new thing, but it's just every year people are appreciating it more and more. I think like it's a Fincher joint. Fincher yeah. doesn't make bad movies. I didn't care for it much, but I saw it and I respected it, but I just, I don't, I never felt the need to rewatch it. Fair. Uh, Parasite. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, this is, this was what I thought to me might be better written than get out, but I'm not sure they're both great. And I'm not even sure I can make a case for one over the other. They're both fantastic to me. No Country for Old Men. Yes, dude. Absolutely deserves to be in the top five. So good. There's so much going on with like the subtext. Like it's one of those movies that like you watch it the first time and it's like enjoyable. And then every time you watch it after that, you catch more and more things and like more and more of what the Coen brothers are talking about in that movie. Do you ever notice like Tommy Lee Jones is the sheriff, right? And, you know, this is a guy who typically plays heroes except for when he played two phase <laughs> we don't talk about that no i just did but whatever uh but usually he's playing a hero so he's playing the sheriff but like the dude just he's ineffectual he's just cleaning up messes and then at the end he's just like gonna retire because he just doesn't he thinks the world has is fucked up and beyond saving basically like there's all this subtext going on underneath it that i fucking love number six moonlight you know i still haven't seen moonlight it's been on it. my queue whenever it hits a streaming service and it's just sitting there it's been on my queue and i just never think about it or when i see it it's always like yeah i'm not in the mood for that right now but do know i need to see it there will be blood yes dude that movie's awesome never saw it really do you like boogie nights yes same director as boogie nights but very different movie Yeah, it's about a very, very insane person who is basically going to get oil through any means. Uh, Yeah, it's the kind of movie that will just age perfectly because there's always going to be greedy motherfuckers like the guy at the center of this movie. Yeah, I'm just not a big Daniel Day-Lewis fan. I I want to not like him, and then I start thinking about all the movies I've seen. Like no, and I will not say he's a bad actor. I just. The movies that are in are just stuff that doesn't interest me as much. Yeah. I would say if you watch There Will Be Blood, I think you would get pulled into it. Inglorious Bastards? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. We did a whole Tarantino episode back when we had pop culture consumption, and I called this his masterpiece. I don't think it's... I I think Pulp Fiction is going to be kind of considered it's tough dude i think he's written like two or three masterpieces but i think this one is the best written screenplay he's done so uh almost famous yes great great screenplay yeah awesome just amazing memento yes yeah, so that's your top 10 right there. I've seen all of those movies, except for Moonlight, like not a bad one in the bunch. So adaptation, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love adaptation. I'm in. Bridesmaids, yes. Yeah? Yeah. I love that they got a comedy on the list too. Brokeback Mountain, yes. 
I haven't seen it, but really, you should watch it. Pretty good, man. We can watch it together. We can cry at the end on each other's shoulders. Uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Great movie. So another comedy. Sideways. Yes. I didn't care for that one. Why is that? Is it because Paul Giamatti is so unsettling? <laughs> I'm not drinking fucking Merlot. I mean, you know you're not supposed to like. Oh, I know, like, him, like right? No, not at all. You're not really supposed to like either of them. Like Thomas Hayden Church is such an asshole the way he's like cheating around on his wife. Yeah, they're both despicable people. Yeah, I love this movie though. <laughs> uh, Lady Bird, yes, I haven't seen it. Oh, dude, Lady Bird is so good. Lady Bird is like one of the best movies that most people will never see. And if you want to see what, like, Timothy Chalamet was like uh, when he was younger, it's a good one to check out. Her? Yes. That's the one yeah, where... Yeah, I haven't seen that one either. Yeah, that's the one where basically uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays a guy who's basically got kind of a phone deal with, like, artificial intelligence and it's voiced by Scarlett Johansson and he falls in love with her. Like, it, it's it's a Spike Jones movie, so it's super fucking weird, but really well done. Children of Men? I haven't seen this one. I haven't seen it either. Yeah, we should really watch it. I've I've heard it's good. Loss in translation. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it once. I was done with it once, but I did think it was a good movie. But it is one of those ones for me, like I don't need to rewatch it, you know? Agreed. Michael Clayton, never seen it. I'm not even sure I've ever heard of that one. So it came out in 2007, and I just thought it was like a weird lawyer drama or something. It still might be. I don't know. There's something <laughs> about that name that makes me not want to watch it. But I've heard it's good. I don't know. Uh, Little Miss Sunshine? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great movie. <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Tarantino's got two on here. Yes. 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 Great movie. Promising Young Woman. Haven't seen that one yet. Been meaning to watch it for a Never while. Never even heard of it. Uh, that was up for an Oscar this year. A bunch of Oscars, actually. It was up for Best Picture. Um, it's about a woman who... There's a lot of twists and turns in it, and I don't want to necessarily ruin what I know, because I actually do know how it plays out, because I listen to a lot of podcasts. Essentially, this woman goes to bars and pretends like she's too drunk to function, and then oh, traps I guys. Have seen, I have seen stuff about that. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, you've seen it? No, like, no, How do no. you forget so fast? <laughs> no, I, uh, no, I saw the extended trailer for that, and it looked really interesting. Yeah. Juno? Yes. 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 Juno's really good. And the Grand Budapest Hotel. Okay. So is this top 20? That was top 25. That's 25? Yeah. I am surprised Pulp Fiction is not on this list. Pulp Fiction was not in the 2000s. Ah, that's right. Okay. This has to be 2000s because I was looking at it stretches back to 2000s. So, yeah, I think it's for the 2000s. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I want to, like, add something to the list, but, like, all the movies I've seen on there, there's not a single one I'm upset at. And the two or three that I haven't seen, I'm just like, yeah, I heard so many good things about it. It makes sense, you know? Yeah. I I mean, there's quite a bit in that mid mid-teens that I haven't seen, but, you know, I haven't heard anything that would that would make me question where they're all on that list. Yeah. So the last thing I have is The Boys is doing an animated spinoff. So Carl Urban did a video because they're going to start The Boys up again soon, but they're all doing an animated spinoff. It's just like one-off episodes. There are eight episodes. The show's called Diabolical. And they got a bunch of different people to write stories. So there's uh, Aquafina, Garth Ennis, Elliot and Alana Glazier, Evan Goldberg, Seth Rogen, Simon 
Rakopia, Justin Roiland, Ben Bayuth, Andy Samberg, and Aisha Taylor. Wow, there's some good names in that. There's some big names on that. I'm going to have to check that out. I'm also going to have to catch up with the boys because I think I dropped off after like three episodes. The second season? Yeah, it was – whenever that came out, there was a lot of shows going. I do remember that, and I couldn't keep up with all of them. And after three episodes, I made the calculated decision where I was like, the boys is the one I'm enjoying the least of these. So I'm going to put that on the back burner and come back to it. Yeah, I would go back to it. It's yeah, I'm not great. This is not this is not me being shitty about it or anything. Um, I've I, I'm not going to go into my personal life on, on the the podcast more than I normally do, but uh, I have way less time like screen time than I've ever had since getting married. So like the last twelve years, I've just had less time. Part of that is is all the production stuff, and then part of that is just like personal stuff. So it like there was there's three shows I watch religiously a week, and I have not gotten to watch like they all came out on Sunday and I haven't gotten to watch any of them. We're <laughs> recording this on Wednesday. It's like, and I don't know when I'll get to watch them before. So it's just like hard for me to keep up with everything, you know? Yeah. But it's definitely on the list. And if season three is coming out, I will make it. There's also another thing, and I'll just tease this out. I'm hoping to have something ready with either you or Carl, depending on when I finish it. But uh, the Beatles put out that Get Back. By Peter Jackson. Yes. And at first I was like, fuck that. I don't need eight hours of the Beatles. I'm tired of this shit. And then I started hearing people talk about it. I was like, well, it sounds interesting. I'll check out a couple of minutes. I am fucking riveted. I'm one episode in. That took me all week to watch in chunks because the first episode was 253 minutes. Oof. There's three episodes and they're all 200 plus minutes. So it's like, it's not anything you can't just pause and walk away from. You know what I mean? So I've been doing that, but it is fascinating. And I'll give my thoughts on that pro- hopefully next week. It just depends on when I can finish it. But that's that's kind of been my priority right now because it is very fascinating. And I want to talk about it before it gets completely moldy. So back to Carl. <laughs> Okay, I got Carl here. Anne Rice died at age 80. I didn't see anything about how she died. Just Com- a lot of complications from a stroke. Is that what it was? Yeah. So do you have any kind of history with Anne Rice? I read a bunch of her books when I was a kid. There were a lot less of them, so it's easier to read most of her books. But even then, there were like four books in the Vampire Lestat series, and then there were like three books in her uh, Witches series and there was like two or three books in her weird bdsm series and uh interesting (laughs) so she's a kinky 80 year old (laughs) she was pretty interesting and then like at a certain point i kind of lost interest her books started to get like it was got harder and harder to get through each subsequent sequel i didn't read the witches books at all And I didn't really read the BDSM ones because they were just like not in this – they're not interesting to me, I guess. Yeah. Um, But I read most of the Lestat ones for a while until there were too many of them to keep track. And like just these – It looked like like the last Centuries-long histories of some of these characters is hard to keep track of. Yeah. It looks like the last book she put out was another Lestat book. (laughs) Well, and then she had this weird phase where she – started writing Bible fiction. Like she wrote a book about the years of Jesus's life when he was in between. Oh, that, that period from like being a kid to being what? 33 or whatever. Yeah. Like what was going on when he was like 12, what was going on when he was six. 
kind of thing. Because, I mean, really, he goes from being a baby to being – do we ever hear about toddler Jesus in the Bible? Does okay. the Bible talk so, about – So the, what's recognized as the Bible now, only in this one tribe in Africa – do they have the stories? And those stories they found later when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, those were all taken from the Bible. Those were in the, the original version of the New Testament. They were stricken by the Catholic Church. And so they just took out all of this well, stuff. This and it was a like lot a of a bunch of Da Vinci Code nonsense. No, this is true. Like <laughs> I, I watched it on the History Channel before it was all ice truckers. Oh, the History and Channel. Yeah, this was back when they actually did history. So like the nineties. Did they though? Yeah, yeah. 100%. I'm wondering now. Maybe so, they've always been a bunch of bullshit. Uh, They're just like not hiding it. Anymore. It was basically arts and entertainment extension channel was what it originally was, and of course it got bastardized, and then aliens, <laughs> and yeah, just like blew apart the whole thing. They ruined it. They, they were like, let's they lean really into that. Did. Let's lean right into that because it used to be the History Channel was like, I'm going to learn something about history. The question is, do I want to learn about World War II? Because that's like seventy percent of their programming, yeah. right? Was like World War II. Ugh. Yeah, which that's why I kind of wonder because. I mean, a lot of war documentaries are just propaganda anyways. Yeah. You know, glorifying these things or like demonizing the enemy, a lot of enemy demonizing or in certain cases. And who's cases, easier to demonize than the Nazis? Well, in but our then society. in some cases, too, there are Nazi documentaries that are a little too sympathetic, if yeah. you get my meaning. Oh, you know? Yeah, and I then do. You, and then you meet like the old guy with diabetes that just sits in his house all day because his legs don't really work anymore. And he just watches these Nazi documentaries that are like suspiciously anti-Semitic. And you're going like, what's happening here? (laughs) What? (laughs) All of a sudden these German shepherds, this guy has are a lot more sinister. (laughs) I would say that anybody who has these concerns or has never thought about this stuff should definitely listen to the real war project because it's definitely stuff that Charles and Aaron talk about. But I think they focus more on like, uh, camera angles. Well, no, lighting. I, get the lighting. Right. No, not at all. I, I feel like no attention <laughs> paid to that whatsoever. How about, but uh, definitely talking about the military industrial complex and how it shaped screenplays. Just the fact that like the military can make or break a war movie by going and like giving them support. You can film our aircraft carrier. You can get all this footage of planes. Like you can film right up to this plane. Like it's millions, sometimes billions of dollars of stuff that would take to recreate it. And they can make it happen for you for free in the budget. Or they can make it difficult in some cases, especially in the 50s and 60s, to distribute your movie because they're the Department of Defense and they carry a lot of sway. So if you're a movie like Dr. Strangelove, they can really go for you because I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's not (laughs) pro-military. It's really not pro-military. I mean, have you ever seen that movie? Uh, Not all in a row. So Dr. Strangelove. I've seen a lot of the like iconic scenes from it. Yeah, in parody form. Doctor Strangelove is a Nazi scientist who was brought over, and he's he's supposed to be Henry Kissinger essentially, but he is literally a Nazi. He goose steps in part of it when he's very very excited that they're gonna drop the bomb and and things like that. Like it's pretty on the nose. (laughs) They let you know where their heart is, and it's not with our boys in blue. (laughs) The trick the trick is to walk that line of making your movie just cool enough. You know, Mm -hmm. to like get them to ignore the subtext. And that's when you wind up with something like Full Metal Jacket. It's why I don't buy 
anymore when people try and say, no, it's talking about real things with soldiers because they're dealing with PTSD. And you start to realize like, no, the Department of Defense is okay with talking about PTSD because over and over again, it is a trope in movies. They're okay with somebody talking about that one guy who gets PTSD. Because when you look at it, generally everybody else is fine. It's just one character struggling with it, right? And it's said over and over and over again. And so it's, I think they feel like it's a harmless narrative at this point because people are aware of it and don't really care. You know, this is probably not an uncommon take on Full Metal Jacket, but I forget that there's a whole half of that movie that happens after they go to boot camp. I mean, technically, there's a whole four-fifths of that movie that happens after boot camp. Boot camp is like the opening act. But for me, like that's kind of where the movie ends. Yeah. Is with Private Pyle killing himself. All of the iconic stuff is at the beginning. Like yeah. all of it. And then the movie just keeps going. I have it's I, also it's a not, blur. Yeah. Everything that happens after they after Pyle shoots himself is a blur. You and basically that guy I, went on to become Kingpin, didn't he? Uh Vin Vinny D. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he did. And fucking and what's the point of watching that movie once Arlie Ermy stops being in it, right? Like that. It's a good movie. I just, <laughs> once again, I think the iconic stuff happens at the beginning. It's more like showing how Matthew Modine is like swept up into the military industrial complex, but yeah, also yeah. really wants to be a part of it. And yet he's complicit in all of it. And so I think it's all just all of these subtle examples of like yeah. how he has been I don't remember changed by the military. After right. That. Because there's nothing that's so raw, raw. Like I think it's very intentional that like the big part of action that everybody remembers is a soldier freaking out and killing one of his own, right? <laughs> Stanley Kubrick was no fan of the military. He made at least three war movies that were... Anti-war. Well, he was trying to make them anti-war trying. for sure. Yeah. yeah, and then like got completely misconstrued after you know 20 years later. Full Metal Jacket People, for sure. Yeah. I don't think anybody can watch Dr. Strangelove and not realize it's like dripping with sarcasm. Right, but I also think that in... That there are a lot of people that just couldn't get through Dr. Strangelove. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. If you are somebody who's into the military industrial complex, you're not getting through that movie. Yeah. Because at every turn, it's telling you how wrong it is and how stupid or ridiculous everybody is who's like pushing for the bomb to be dropped. It's also just an older movie that harder for people to get through these days anyways with the way the pace is so much faster and... They just don't shoot movies like that anymore. No, they really don't. It's a barrier. Just its age is a barrier. I mean, if we're being honest, if you have a hard time with slow pacing, is there a Kubrick movie you could get through? I don't. Well, I mean, just just objectively, he has a slower pace to all of his stuff. Maybe The Shining because it has enough high tension moments. Like a lot of the – it's different when the slow pace is building tension. Okay. And Shining, I think, is a good example of a lot of the slow pace is tension building. And so you're kind of like the more on the edge of your finger, your seat you become, like as you're waiting for that, like the better the payoff, I suppose. Like I felt that way a lot in when I watched It Follows because it's very yeah. slow pace of a movie. But you that's know, You know what's interesting about It Follows? And I don't know. I'm just I'm just throwing out an observation, but I have noticed the people who really liked It Follows is like people around our age or slightly older 
Like, I have not seen young people that were like, that's a great movie because I think it's like got that slower pace. And I think specifically the thing it's doing is it's it's really smart, honestly. Like, yeah. it's, it's saying, OK, so stuff like Jason Voorhees, they were trying to actualize sex as like sex equals death. Right. Like that. That's the weird little message that runs through a lot of those slasher movies is, is if you fuck, you're going to get killed. And that movie is like, you know what? Let's just take it all the way. Let's not make it like an obscured metaphor. Let's just put it out in the forefront. This is a sexually transmitted ghost. <laughs> like yeah. it works like a, like an STD, right? Like you can have sex with somebody and then somewhere down the line, all of a sudden you realize like you've given this like STD to somebody else because one of your past partners had it and eventually it catches up with you, right? Like yeah. that's, that's the idea. Of I almost like to think that it's not a ghost of like a person either like because there's no explanation whatsoever about what this force is it's more of a force i feel like than anything else it's like the ghost of the first sexually transmitted disease yeah like it's the ghost of the disease not of like the first person infected with it but of the disease itself yeah it's like the or it's like I don't even know because it doesn't care because it's just going to go from person to person. And you I might mean, when think, does it stop? And like you could you could have this affair with somebody and think it's all left behind you and like just be going along your life and everything's normal. And then all of a sudden, like, ah, shit, like I does I it like go dormant something. occasionally? No, and I, come back. Well, like, the, I, there's the, a million questions okay, I have so, about. So the rules of it are it's chasing whoever the most recent person who right. had and then sex, when it kills right? them, when it kills it them, then it goes works backwards. It works to backwards. The previous. So, person. but what I'm saying is like, when does it stop? Because what if, what if like there has got to be a certain point where like everybody's dead. They're already dead from. They're so far removed, right? That eventually it's like, okay, I've killed this person. Now it's time to go to this person next. Oh, they died 17 years ago of a heart attack. This is the kind of thing I love pulling apart. And yet if they explain that in the movie, it would ruin it a little bit. It wouldn't, you know uh, what I mean? Well, it would all because depend would on if to, it was a good explanation. You would have not, to though. generate another explanation. And it, the simplicity, like it's like the gremlins thing. Like uh, as this is coming up, I think gremlins – we talked about on Cosmic Void last week, but like there's three <laughs> rules, right? And one of the rules is don't feed it after midnight. But if you cross the international dateline, is it okay to like <laughs> feed them? Like if you go across a time zone, but then come out and it's got food in its belly, like does it turn into a gremlin? What time zone does it go off of? I like, feel you know like what I those mean? are like, important questions to ask yourself while you're writing the script, though, because do you, are you are you going to work stuff like that into the script or not? Right. But the point like, of gremlins. Is not, people are going to ask those rule. kinds, but it's, people are still going to ask those questions. You're right. Listen, look at what we're doing right now. You're we're right. talking about it. But false. I think in 1984, they weren't thinking about that, That's right? Because they were on a lot of cocaine in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like so and Joe, Joe Dante, at that point, I think he had only <laughs> done Corman picks. <laughs> like Roger Corman. So like, <sighs> you know, like he takes this thing and like actually turns it into a really fun screenplay. And it's and like, insane. Yeah. But I feel like nobody was talking. And your... I could be wrong, but I feel like nobody was talking about the rules until I was they in high school. That monologue of Phoebe Cates's, right? Was that Phoebe Cates? Yes. The Santa they Claus approved thing. Her Santa father, dead Santa, dead, dead dad story. You want they, to know something fun about that? They approved that. So that made it all the way from filming to like, was it in the script or did she just. Okay. Is it a true story? 
So Joe Dante <laughs> works on the script after it comes out, like changes some things. I don't, like I don't James, know who comes up with James that. James Gunn punched but that up. They film that. <laughs> And then whoever the company was who went in with Spielberg, because it was like Amblin Entertainment and something else. And this is right around the time that Spielberg starts producing his own stuff. This is partly why, like, 80s movies, they get bought out by corporations, all the media companies, and they become this, like, formulaic thing, right? That's where you start seeing part two through ten of everything. Leprechaun. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect example. But I think that's, like, the 90s. But, yeah. Because it's got, like, Jennifer Aniston in it, right? She was only in the first one. Yes. That's what I'm talking about, though. But anyway. She was pretty young, um, though. She was pretty young, yeah. But what I'm I think it was her first movie. It might have been. But what I was getting at was um, they were a little bit insulated from that, which I think is one of the reasons why the Spielberg movies stand out so much when we think about 80s cinema just in general. We think about a lot of Spielberg movies. And I think part of that is most of those movies he produced himself, the majority of, so that he had the creative say in them. And then he would bring in a company so that he didn't go under for financing and to distribute stuff, right? So he would get the creative say. So with Gremlins, Spielberg does not like the the Santa Claus thing. He just doesn't like it in general. And the movie company who threw in 35% or whatever it was, I want to say it was Columbia. They didn't like it either. (laughs) And they wanted it pulled out. And Joe Dante was fighting to keep it in because the other company said, we don't know. We don't know whether we're supposed to. They said, we don't know whether we're supposed to laugh at this or cry at this. And Joe Dante was like, we need to leave this in the movie. And Spielberg, to his fucking credit, was like, my director, who I handpicked for this, who like took the screenplay, wants the scene in. I'm going to back my director. Yeah. So he tells the other company Even though to I fuck don't off. like this. Yeah, even though I don't like it, like he tells them to fuck off because Spielberg's a director. And at the end of the day, like he's going to support his guys, which is not something those companies did. That I'm wondering how it even made it into the movie. And now you're telling me that he was fighting for it. Yeah. Like it was so intense. It It was so integral to him that he was willing to like. Can I tell you what? Let this movie not get made. Okay. I'm not going (laughs) to pretend like this is like an iconic scene. It's not. But can I can I tell you why I think it belongs? in the movie sure so I'm watching this very recently and I realized so much of this is about how we're trying to make Christmas this event that like we're very excited for right like you have you have the present buying you've got all of this stuff going on in the town everything in this movie is informing you the holidays are actually very stressful they're uh, dangerous in some cases you've got people who are like drinking coming out of the bar and just like go and get into their vehicle and drive off right like you have so many examples of things where it's like the holidays are just like kind of murder on all of these people and then the gremlins kind of actualize that i think that the gremlins are a metaphor for how holidays the holidays themselves kill people through stress and and through capitalism too right like you have an inventor who's making things that are chintzy that fall apart all the time yeah and then when he sees that the gremlin gets wet or that the mogwai gets wet and can reproduce he's like i think his initial reaction isn't like oh you broke a rule his initial reaction is wow we can have every kid next christmas have their own little gremlin in their home right like it's like capitalism run amok which ties in with the holidays you have that lady who's like responsible for loans who like literally tells a woman with her child she's like you can't foreclose on me it's christmas my husband committed suicide because we're short on money and she was just like well you're gonna have to live in a tent like she says something like that like every single little thing in this movie is 
just supporting, like, the holidays are miserable. So explain the second Gremlins movie to me. Like, Cocaine. A, well, I mean, I, that's the joke. I haven't seen it recently That's enough. the joke, but, yeah. like, I think that... I, I think I, it's a lot it's, like the Key and Peele sketch. Well, yeah, and that's, like, informed a lot of it for me recently as well. But, I will but what say, I'm wondering okay. is, what I'm wondering, Joe Dante, did he make them both? Yes. So I imagine that even though the second one, there's a tonal shift towards the the silly. It's, I feel like, it's yeah. It's a sillier it's movie. It's more slapstick than the um, first one was. And it's also more like, they're just like, anything goes. Like, no, I, there's no such thing as a bad idea. There's definitely, there's definitely an like, anti-capitalism thing I in there, like, though, because you have a Trump stand-in through the whole thing. Like, it's there his will tower. Be, it's there a, will be that same, yeah, that same level of, like, Verhoeven-esque commentary embedded in every detail of Gremlins 2 as well. And it's also more of it's I think it's straying more into direct parody, I mm-hmm. suppose. And they're directly parodying Maybe some of that is a commentary on the knockoffs things. of Gremlins, right? Like because you have like ghoulies and troll it and could hobgoblins. Be a meta commentary on the commercialization of the first movie. Yeah. By intentionally, because then it's like, because he's li- almost like inviting them to make action figures out of these Gremlins 2 characters. He's like, you got your electrical, electro gremlin and you got your g- wing gremlin that is a gargoyle basically and straight up turns to stone. You have the Rex Reed one. Like you literally had Rex Reed who was really famous at the time for doing. Uh, like Spike, right? The Mohawk one? No, I mean, that was the first Who's one. Who's Rex Reed? Okay, so Rex Reed was a guy who wrote for The New Yorker, but he also used to do think pieces on the news all the time. Okay. At, like about movies. So he was like a movie critic. And they literally uh, – um, uh, Stewie on Family Guy, he is doing an impression of Rex Reed. Like that voice – Wait, there's a gremlin that, that does a Rex Reed impression? There's a gremlin who becomes hyper-intelligent, and they oh, literally and got Rex Reed to, to do, do the, the voice and do himself as a gremlin. Okay. Like, he's the one that's And, like, the girl it. gremlin does a Marilyn Monroe impression. Yes. And, and you see that uh, in the first one, too. Like, when they're at the bar, for example, or the movie theater when they're watching <laughs> Snow White, it's like they just put on some clothes, and they become whoever <laughs> those clothes are, right? <laughs> right? So you, like, see somebody drunk at a bar and they're like they're losing everything oh, in a God. poker game and they're getting desperate and then Stripe I just shoots gremlins, him. Dude. It's great, dude. Grim- it's Joe so good. Dante, I'd like to shake your hand someday for making Grim the both Gremlins movies, not yeah. just the second one. Which I, am- I I have a, a real soft spot for the second one, especially because they made different they they made different edits of the film for the yeah. different releases of the film. Like the if- the middle of it, the interruption in it is like it's a film. If you saw it in the theaters or later on. DVD, Blu-ray, and whatever. Hulk Hogan, but if you saw and Hulk Hogan's it, like, hey, you gremlins, you knock it off. But if you watch it at home, it's like John Wayne shooting. If you gremlins, watch it right? on television, the the fucking gremlins take control of your TV and start changing the channels and yep. invading other TV shows and movies. And it's fucking genius that it's like tailored to the medium in which you're watching it. There's like a break in the film that can be re-edited quite easily because it's just like a time chunk. It's like from this point to this point, the gremlins hijack the movie and we'll do a version. We'll do a scene where they hijack your home VCR. We'll do a version where they hijack TV cable channel. We'll do a version where they hijack a theater and do fucking 
do shadow puppets on the freaking movie I, screen. I will God, say, genius. The last genius. time I saw Gremlins <laughs> two was right when Trump was running for president, and like it's so obvious that Zach Galligan's boss in that movie is Trump. Like he looks exactly like Trump looked in the eighties. He's got a tower named after him. He's got a news network. Like that might be one of the few things that has aged poorly. Like the the no, maybe no, he's that's not the thing. set up as a hero. No, 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 no. But I'm just kind of I've got Trump parody fatigue yeah. at this point. But they were ahead of the curve. That's what you I gotta know. remember. But yeah, I'll, okay. I'll, I see and what I'll you're give saying. them that. I, and I, I don't I, and that's why I don't want to call it a flaw of the movie. But I would just say it's probably the thing that for me has aged the poorest yeah is like trump stop like because back then it was it was different too yeah like parroting basically what they were trying to do with that i think is like in the first one we're seeing how technology breaks down nothing's built to last like it's it's shoddy and it's just being sold to us and then in gremlins 2 they're like let's elevate that and show the guy who actually is responsible for putting all this stuff in our living room and i can't help but feel like the fact that we paid attention to that guy at all and just to parody him even back then kind of inadvertently gave him clout. Oh, yeah. 100%, dude. In the 100%. Th- where he could be like, the only reason that they're doing this is because I'm a powerful man. And yeah. then people give him another loan. Dude, he was a <laughs> shorthand for a rich guy. Like, I remember this very, yeah. very clearly in the 80s and 90s and when I was growing up. Artificially he was inflate his He was own always the first importance. rich guy you thought of. He yeah. was always the first rich guy you thought of. And you always thought of him John because Mulaney. they would write something with a rich guy for like a sitcom, for example. Because he was in a ton of sitcoms, too. Yeah. They would write up a sitcom with a rich guy. And then they would reach out and say, hey, Donald Trump, would you do that? And he almost always says yes and then he goes and does it and then the audience loves it because they're like hey there's the real rich guy like doing this joke so yeah we kind of built it up for sure because like we honestly worship wealth in this country and you know what uh to circle it back around uh ann rice r.i.p yeah <laughs> okay let's What's get next on the list <laughs> well, hold on i i do have one, i just i do have one thought on how many different weird ass tangents yeah, we went some places on this. We, I've lost track of how we got here. Uh, we were talking about the industrial military complex, <laughs> which I think somehow <laughs> led from like, It Follows. There's a couple <laughs> of, I, you know, sometimes we just got these rants that are just in our back pocket. Yeah. We're just waiting for a thinly veiled excuse to pull it out. Well, the, my my only real memory of Anne Rice, because I did not read any of her books, was I remember the lead up to Interview with the Vampire. I remember that it was a big book and she did not like that Tom Cruise was going to be in the movie. And I remember that being a very, very big thing because she was having a very public pissing match with the director and producers of the movies. And then right before it came out, whether it was honest or whether it was her realizing I have to shut up and collect the check, whatever it was, she suddenly changed her tune because she was saying that Tom Cruise was not right for Lestat. And the story was that she saw a screening of the film and was like, oh, he's actually perfect. And so then she signed off on it before it hit theaters. And I remember watching the movie and being like, it's all right. I was kind of horrified at the Kirsten Dunst character because the idea of being that fucking age for your entire life. Oh, yeah. And living for so long. And in the books, it's like, yeah, they it's a lot. Everything has got more depth to it. Yeah. And and they really get it. I I feel like we kind of touch that again in the Eternals. Right. Because. Yeah. 
we get the heel turn with is her name Sprite or something yeah. like that. She's got kind of the same thing going in that like yeah. she's never going to age and she's a child. So like we see that like she influenced pop culture going forward. So it was pretty much just that. And then they did what Queen of the Damned. And I remember watching that and everything <sighs> about that movie I hated. It's like pretty literally bad. everything. And it's I think a really, it, well, the it thing completely is, ruined her. This is another movies. problem with that movie is that it's two books squished together. Queen of the Damned is the third book in the series. The first book is Interview with the Vampire. The second book is The Vampire Lestat. The third book is Queen of the Damned. Then I think it's The Bone Thief and then something else. But anyways, the whole part where Lestat like comes out as a vampire, but he's like in this rock band. And so it's like a, everyone assumes it's a persona. And like when he does his vampire tricks on stage, they assume it's special effects. And right. it's just having a blast. That's the entirety of the second book, which is as long, if not longer, than Interview with a Vampire. Then Queen of the Damned gets into all the backstory of like the origin of vampires and she takes it all the way back to Egypt and like Mesopotamia and uh, like pre-Christianity, pre all that shit, like way before all that stuff. This is like the the cradle of mankind. And uh, that's the third book. <laughs> and to squish those two things together, they basically <laughs> had to just do a complete and utter bastardization of both books. So they ruined two books to make a shitty movie and they miscast it everywhere. Yep. Um, the movie weirdly has like a cult following because everything does. Well, specifically <laughs> because the, girl, the music. No, I'm no. Well, the music is corn. That's what I'm saying. It's bad. There's, a, there's it's some really, new, there's really some new metal, new metal people that were yeah, really new all metal about that movie is the wrong was the wrong choice for Lestat. Um, Anyways, no, the reason that it's a cult following is because the queen of the titular queen of the damned, the Egyptian queen, was played by, I believe was it, it was Aaliyah? Aaliyah. And she basically died right after this movie came out or maybe before it came out. But after it was she may have not been able to finish filming it. I There's honestly some, can't remember. But she died like right when the movie was coming out. And so. Aaliyah stands like like that movie just because Aaliyah's in it and no other real reason because there's no other reason to like that movie. It's really, really bad. And I'm going to say I remember her not being great. However, have not seen it since it came out on VCR. Well, she so. just like doesn't really act. She's just like a statue most of the time. That's kind of what I remember, yeah. Like literally she's a statue and then when she comes – when she – like gets freed from being a statue she's still very stiff and like because she's the character she's playing is supposed to be this like ancient being that has that doesn't even look at other vampires as like are like insignificant to her because she's so ancient yeah and uh i would be hard pressed to find a single you know, 19, 21 year old that could convincingly portray that, you know, of, of any gender, you know, that's just not something that comes easily to somebody of that age is to play a thing that could, that doesn't possibly, couldn't possibly, like I would find an 80 year old to be hard pressed to, to play a character that has lived for, you know, 5,000 years. Christopher that's, Lambert like pops his eyebrow. Uh, <laughs> Somebody said uh, on Reddit the other day, what's a movie that you think 
really deserves a sequel. And I said, Highlander. <laughs> Nothing. Like a real it's sequel. It's just a single movie that came out. <laughs> and, and it's just been sitting there alone and never. But, you know, Paul Shear on his podcast on his one of his mini episodes, he was saying, like, why do we keep doing adaptations and reboots of good things? Because all we do is make when we're comparing something to a good thing, it's going to be harder to make a good another good, even if it's like pretty good, if it's not as good or if it's not twice as good, then people complain about it. So what yeah. you do <clears throat> is you take something that sucks and you reboot that with a modern perspective. Yeah. And then it'll be good. And then it will just be good. Because it the compared answer to, to that the, the answer to that though is that there's they big. can turn around and sell the old thing as well as the new thing and that's why they do it that well. But how many times have they remade a classic, like a legitimate classic and then the new one overshadows it? The only thing I could come up with off the top of my head is Scarface because like the original was a classic. It was from the 20s. It was very influential to gangster movies. I would say And then like the Al Pacino one is has all of the memorable scenes, right? Like that's what's remembered. I would say um 12 Monkeys has very much overshadowed I don't know that the short is a classic, though. <laughs> it definitely overshadows the nine-minute short that only uses still images and voiceover. Fair. It very much overshadows it. Uh, Evil Dead 2 overshadows Evil Dead. But Yeah, I guess, I guess that's a remake. It's a that's, sequel, I'm though, cheating. really. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a sequel and a reboot. <laughs> I mean, it's not a sequel because the same people – is it a different? girlfriend it's literally got two in the title (laughs) i know but it's it's the same girlfriend but different actress yeah yeah and it's the same character though it's it's a remake but it's a sequel it's 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 so weird because it's a remake and the rules of canon in yeah and they, basically the most aggressively they all do it too because army of darkness does it as well because you get the setup at the beginning and then all of a sudden he's working at smart and has, has it, like a girlfriend it at throws S-Mart in the s yeah it's, well it follows wait no because he goes through the portal yeah what the fuck yeah they all God do damn it. it they all do it what a <laughs> How frustrating. I but mean, let's, let's but be honest, man. Would you have it any no, other no, way? Good. Yeah, would you have it any other way? Like, it's, I love those movies. It's very uh, Douglas Adams-esque in its, like, flaunting, like, in the face of, like, canon. Yeah. It's very much like, haha, that's how you think this works? <laughs> like how the Hitchhiker's trilogy is five books. <laughs> it's still called the Hitchhiker's trilogy. That's the long con to just, like... Make a trilogy and then make sure to put out five books. Like, how many people have done that? Like, Douglas Adams, George R. R. Martin, right? Like, he's just been, like, trolling people forever with that. Not only am I going to do way more than the trilogy, I promise, but it's going to take, like, 50 years to get them out. And I'll probably die before they're done. Yeah, I don't – I can't do that. I can't read the – the books that that I've never had, finished, the series that never finished. Yeah, I've had them sitting it. on my shelf, and I promised a couple of people that I would read them after the show was done. But now I'm realizing, Those like, unless he actually finishes the series, I'm not doing it. But I think a lot of them, like my mom, she read them as they came sadist. out. She read them as they came out. So it was like... 
you know, she read one in like '97 and was just like, "This is great." And then it wasn't wait so goddamn torture. long. It, reading those books is torture, and the only way for you to feel good about it is to inflict that on somebody else by suggesting that they read those books, and then they have that torture inflicted on them. Say this, <laughs> like my, it follows. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, I have a stupid Tom Holland story I wanted to talk about here. Okay. So uh, apparently he was on a harness to swing his Spider-Man in a scene in this movie, and he had he was holding Zendaya in the the harness, and then he farted on her, and she was like, "Yeah, it was really obvious it was you." And the only reason I mentioned this is because like she had been making the rounds with Timothy Chalamet for Dune, and they really seemed kind of handsy and, like, super friendly with each other. And I'm wondering if, like, the relationship just soured with that fart. Like, what do you think? (laughs) I was thinking maybe Tom Holland saw all the press stuff that she was doing with Timothy Chalamet and was like, I'm gonna fart on her. (laughs) So he, like, loaded one up before they filmed the scene, and then he was just like, oh, no, the harness caught me wrong, and but he had it ready to go. Like, I will get you back. Interesting. So you're going a different direction. Yeah. I think you might be accurate on that. That actually sounds more realistic than mine. <laughs> as gross as farting is, are you going to end a relationship over a fart? Like, Yeah, I think it's, this, I think it's just like a, a, a cheeky way of getting back at her. It's literally cheeky. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, so Six Feet Under is getting a follow-up series. It's as of yet undecided whether it will be another season or a reboot or even who's going to be involved with it. So did you ever watch Six Feet Under on HBO? Nope. That was a period when I did not have access to HBO for any – and I missed all those shows from that era. I missed Oz. I missed that. I missed Sopranos. I missed uh, all of it. Like Gammy of – Ronis? I don't Whatever it's know called. what that is. <laughs> Game of Thrones. Oh, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. That one. yeah we we're just talking Whatever about that one. Uh, I don't know. I've watched the last episode, and that's it of the whole series. So Six Feet Under was basically. Uh, I know about. It, I know all like about a, it. I know, but I'm telling the oh, listeners. Oh, you're telling. We have a lot of younger care. listeners. Um, it's basically about a funeral home and everybody dealing with death. The thing I wanted to bring up here is they have the most definitive ending. Maybe That's ever for a series. I thought it yeah. because literally you see every character's death. Yeah, every single one of them. Yeah. So what you doing for this, my man? Yeah, <laughs> like, it seems like it can only be a reboot, or is it like the good place for the the six feet under characters? What if that's what it was? What if that's what it was? What if? Ooh, I don't think that now works. I, wanted, for, I don't no, think that works. works for what no, the you show take was, the good place and you just put the characters from Six Feet Under in the good place from the good place. Okay. And how would they handle being in not well the bad place? I'm telling you right now, Dexter Morgan doesn't do well there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Michael C. Hall. Yeah. Maybe they follow Rain Wilson for this. Maybe this is the new Rain Wilson vehicle because he was on like a season, maybe two seasons of that show. He's not a member of the family, though. Uh, he's a mortician who comes in and works with the family. And right. not everybody he was in the family. There was another mortician that was in the cast as well. Like like main cast? Yes. Not recurring? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the f- there's like a two brothers and a sister and a mother. A mother. 
And then there's like a mortician who came in. And then that was technically the principal cast, but Richard Jenny is played the father who dies in the opening opening scene. But he is a ghost that talks to them all the time. He's always the way that the ghost series. The way that the ghosts work in the show is it's always tailored to the person's perspective. So if you're paying attention to the show, at no moment do you ever think that the ghosts are real. They're clearly projections that they have because the father, for example, when he's dealing with the daughter he's always super supportive of her and, and when like he's trying like to tell talking to the brother he's super critical there's a brother who's gay yeah and like closeted That's for Dexter, much of the right? series yeah michael c hall yeah. and he is just like so awful to him and yeah. then like he's somewhat antagonistic to the older i remember brother. that show one of the things about the gimmicks of the show and i don't mean gimmicks in like a derogatory or like a dismissive way but like every episode starts with a death right yes yeah and I remember my dad really liking that part of the show and always being in, entertained by how they kind of throw you off. Like yep. one of the episodes They'd starts have a misdirect. Off, yeah. Like one of the episodes has a guy up on a high – working on a high rise and you're just waiting for him to fall. And then instead he drops his lunchbox and it like hits a lady on the head and kills her on the street. Yep. <laughs> and they, that's the death that they the show the episode follows. I feel like they didn't do that in the first season, but then later they would occasionally throw that out because they wanted to to keep you on your toes a little bit cuz once you see the convention at play, it's like, "All right, let's play with the convention a bit." But what I really liked about that was it was Whoever died at the beginning of the episode, it's not like they're just over. It's just this person with a different perspective. And so they're working on this body at various points. And you have family that's coming in or whatever. And so the people that are working on them will have conversations with the ghost. And it'll always be like through this different point of view. It's definitely projection on the character's parts. Like, nobody ever talks about I see ghosts or anything like that. They never address it, but you can tell it's like a projection that kind yeah. of changes the Like, the show's not about the afterlife at all. No, it's not. But it It's makes, about but dealing it, with death. Right, but it makes me think, because, like, there's a lot of shows that deal with death and... Like Dead Like Me, for example. Well, I was just thinking, like, about the afterlife. shows, there are shows that deal with mortality, and they either deal with mortality, like, most of them address mortality through the lens of an afterlife because mm-hmm. it's something that is purely springs from the imagination and it's it can like soften kind of sugarcoat the the message which is like not an easy it's not a happy message you know mortality is yeah. not a happy thing to embrace necessarily i mean if you're suicidal like you can just wait right because mm-hmm. it'll happen death will, death will come it always does. Yeah. But anyways, like uh, Dead Like Me popped into my mind in comparison. To- it also came out. It was a direct response to HBO having a hit with Six Feet Under. Like it was a direct response. It wasn't the I same show, it. but they. I enjoyed the three or four episodes I watched. Like when Netflix was Man, in the early days, him, I like got a disc for it. But then it got buried in my queue yeah. at some point and never really got back to it. Like them being Reapers is an interesting conceit. And then they're also like in they're like they don't look like themselves. They look like themselves to each other, but like with out in the world they look like not themselves. So like 
she can encounter her mother who's still alive and her mother doesn't recognize her mm-hmm. kind of thing. But it like it actually was like talking about these things and kind of a little silly. Then you got your like CW show Reapers, which while I did kind of find it mildly entertaining. I only watched the pilot because I knew Kevin Smith directed it. But yeah, I, I watched well, it like, and I was like, ah, I don't think this show's for so me. So <laughs> in that one, this guy, his dad made a deal with the devil and then now it's time for the dad to pay up and the payment is that the devil gets his son but then what the devil does is he like basically takes the dad and makes the son be uh like a reaper that's why the show is called reaper and his job is like souls escape from hell and are like the souls of bad guys and he it's his job to like go ghost bust him and send him back to hell it's Pretty much 99% just silly comedy. Right. But Ray Wise is the devil. And that detail alone (laughs) is like, yeah, I'll watch this show a couple of times. I'll watch watch through and see how it goes. Because Ray Wise, man, that guy, he plays a good devil, man. He's played Satan multiple times. He was the only good Punisher in my estimation. That's not. Or at least for the movies. What are you talking about? Wasn't he in You're Punisher thinking, Warzone? That's Ray Winston. or Wy- Win- uh, Ray Wise is the dad from uh, Twin Peaks. I don't know. I didn't he is really watch Twin like, Peaks. He's the devil. <laughs> he was the <laughs> devil in, in, in like a bunch. He's in like, look at his, look him up. I'm looking it up. I just saw him in an episode of Castle recently. And as soon as I saw him in the episode, I was just like, that's the murderer. Not because of who, which <laughs> character he was playing in the show, but because why would you put Ray Wise in your murder mystery show and not make him the killer? And I was right. <laughs> oh, wait, I got Ray Wise mixed up. That's what I'm There's saying. There's no way it's this guy. What's he known for? What's he known for? Yeah, on IMDb. Batman the Killing Joke. What? <laughs> Wrong. Dead End. Jeepers Creepers 2. What? Good Night and Good Luck. Psych 3. Home Economics. Batman the Anime. Wait. That's just his most I'm recent sorry, stuff. Um, IMDb has changed the way that they are on phones. They don't just do the, the top four anymore. Oh. Yeah, because none of those I could see as him being I'm pretty he's sure known he, for. I think he was the devil in that short-lived 666 Park Avenue. Like, I think he was the devil in that as well. Wow. He's got 249 credits to his name, dude. That's he's a busy, nuts. He's a busy guy. I guarantee you that a vast majority of those are like single episodes of TV shows. Yeah, I can confirm that. <laughs> Flipping through this right now. He's one of those guys where – and but he also is in a ton of movies. He does a ton of movies. He just never stops. He's oh. – I'm pretty sure he's off or only. You know what I mean? People write character parts just for him to play. He played Captain Pike in a Star Trek thing I'm not familiar with. Weird. Probably voiced. It looks like animated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've never heard of this thing. Because <laughs> he don't look like Captain Pike. No. Dude, but I know like, I've seen him in a bunch of stuff. I just he can't plays like, put it together. He plays a slick businessman type a lot. Yeah. He's a shark. He's yeah. always a shark. He looks like like, a, guy, like George like George Hamilton. Yeah. Like you're always having George Hamilton in a suit. Yeah, like that's just what Dude, he does. He's a George Hamilton without the addiction to tanning. <laughs> Was the dad in in Twin Peaks? I uh, he had his hair. He goes definitely white. had 18 episodes of Twin Peaks. Okay, said, so. his hair his hair goes white. He's in the first season. He he actually spoiler alert. He's 
the murderer, but he was possessed. I already knew this by Bob. I've heard so and many people talk. That's about why his Twin hair Peaks turns white life. overnight because his hair goes completely <clears throat> white at one point. That's a plot point. You know what's interesting is in terms of it's a side effect of, of the possession. Like in terms of pop culture, like how pop culture perceived the thing. I do remember when Twin Peaks was out. Because I was like probably like 11, like 11, 12. And I remember hearing all the discourse around it. And I remember how much people loved it in the first season and how much people turned on it so fast in the second season. I like, like the second just season. Tr- I, I'm not talking garbage. I think but it's the- one of those things that's been reclaimed over time. But I, yeah. at the time, it was clearly everybody wanted to know what happened with Laura Palmer. And it, my understanding is like David Lynch just wasn't going to hand a neatly wrapped thing to anybody because plan- that's not what he does. His- his, well, his that was never the point. The right. show was never about who killed Laura Palmer. He no, didn't but want the, the it. And as soon as he answered, the, as soon as the question it, was definitively answered, as soon as that question was, and that answered, was Firewalk with me, right? No, Where that the, was that was like basically um, the end of season one or the beginning of season two. Um, okay, that's why he's only in eighteen episodes, which is about the first half of the sh- of the series, like of I the would, entire series. <clears throat> that show was so big in its first season; they were doing recurring parodies of it on Saturday Night Live. Oh. Like I remember that. Like I remember they had a sketch where they were making fun of it. I think Kyle McLaughlin might have been hosting SNL. Yeah, and they had a part where like Victoria Jackson like puts like gum or something in her mouth and then like has the shape of of a state like come out like she twists it into a like a shape of a state like i don't know something ridiculous I, like don't do they have a woman who like takes a cherry stem and ties it probably with her tongue or something in twin peaks i don't remember but like it, so twin peaks was i don't know when fire walk with me came out it was years later i know that I, I was in high school when i came not out. fire walk i'm sorry i'm sorry what's that um wild at heart i'm sorry i think that's the 80s I want Wild to say. Wild at Heart was one of his first movies. It was an early one of well, his. Well, his right? first one is Eraserhead, then he does Elephant Man, then he does Dune. And then he did Wild at Heart. I think it's, it might be Blue Velvet after that and then Wild at Heart maybe. Okay. Well, anyways, I don't know where it – one of those – it was either Twin Peaks or Wild at Heart is when he first started working with Sherilyn Fenn. And she's like the one that's like uh, – she's the I dog. think it's Wild at Heart. Yeah, and she's in Wild at Heart. She's – when they're going down the road and they come across the car accident and she's got this massive head wound and she's like clearly like dying from this. Like you can, I think you might be able to see brain, you know, and she's just like, is my hero? She's like saying all this weird shit. And then, uh, she's in, uh, she's, uh, uh, in twin peaks as the daughter of the owner of the hotel. And she's like a main character and she dances slow to sexy jazz music at one point and it's an iconic moment yes yeah and uh, that was actually the my big takeaway from twin peaks was it introduced me to the composer angelo badalamenti who has worked with david lynch a bunch yeah and uh, <clears throat> he has some tracks on the lost highway soundtrack which i had because of the trent reznor component of it yeah and i think he also did the soundtrack for naked lunch yeah which so he is, likes he likes bizarre things. Yeah, so he works with Cronenberg, and uh, I just I so I have a lot of like I had a huge crush on Sherilyn Fenn. She's in the first episode of Titans, the HBO Max series. She's the uh, foster mother uh, or adopted mother of um, the Raven Girl, mm-hmm. 
and she uh, gets shot in the head in the first episode. And I just laughed. I was like, that's Sherilyn Fenn's thing is to like die from massive head injury, (laughs) whether it's a gunshot or a car accident or something. I'm pretty sure she gets hit in the head in other there's a, at least one other thing that I know she dies of severe head trauma it's her thing like Zoe Deschanel's thing in movies is to take a shower really oh dude so Every many movie? times that she never she never shows up naked in it but she no. practically there's enough for like a lot of shitty there's montages like, on YouTube there's like scenes of her being quirky with bubbles maybe with like bubble bath. It's always a shower for well, some reason. Somehow but the, they the one still I remember, get suds. They still get yes, so many yeah. suds though. The one like, I really remember is <clears throat> Elf because uh, Amanda plays that every year. But like an Elf, she's like singing a song and then like Will Ferrell comes in and sings the other part of it because he doesn't know to not walk into a bathroom right. with a woman showering. Uh, Emma Stone in Easy A sings in the shower and yeah. Why do they do that? They put Selena Gomez in a shower in the first episode of Only Murders in the Building, and it almost made me not watch the show because, like, it's showing that they've all met each other and then they've, for the night, they've all gone to their respective homes. And you got, you're showing Steve Martin, like, I don't know, doing a crossword puzzle. And then you got Martin Short doing another thing. And then, oh, Selena Gomez. The teenage, like the practically teenage girl, you know, or early, not teenage, but late 20s, early 30s. I was going to say, she's got to be like well late in her 20s, 20s, early 30s now. in the show. She's like late 20s, I think, or mid 20s. Uh, she's got to be taking a shower, you know? Yeah. And I'm just like, if you're going to put Selena, like they are the three co-leads of this show. If you're putting Selena Gomez in a shower, you better be putting Steve Martin and Martin Short in showers too. I don't care if nobody wants to see it. <laughs> Equal. <laughs> That's what they used to do in Glow. Like, yeah, just about everybody had a nude scene at some point in Glow. Like, even Mark Marin talked about it, and he was like, he had to do a nude scene at one point, and he was just like, "Well, all my co-stars had to do it, so yeah, why I'm just going to buck too, up and do you know? it." Yeah, and that was a good way of probably making everybody there more comfortable with it. Yeah, when you're not the only one that has to do it, you know, that irritates me a little bit. Just a little bit that irritates me. Not enough to like really complain, but. Because I enjoyed the series immensely, and yeah. I can't wait for season two. It's it's, but I did. Hard I literally, say, it's hard to say. I can just pull like because of this little sexist thing. I'm not going to right. participate because then you're throwing just about everything off the table. Yeah, I. I mean, I have to forgive. I think that's kind of what we do. Is like we point out if shit I like if this. I want to uh, if I want to not be a complete and total hypocrite, I would have to. St- Stop being a fan of 30 Rock, and that would make me really sad. <laughs> yeah. Because I, Tina Fey has some blind spots. Dude, yeah, a mile wide. She does. And uh, she had jokes about blackface, which, like, were not okay, and I knew wasn't okay at the time. Made me laugh and knew it wasn't okay. Um, all the jokes about uh, what's her face and uh, Kimmy Schmidt, uh, who also played Jenna in 30 Rock, was like Native American and then decided to be a white woman. Yeah. And they had all of those jokes on that. And it was like, that was not okay. It's not working. <laughs> no. And yeah. And, you know, and I know she's not like malicious out here trying to. She's make liberal, work. but she's also like liberal for people in their 50s. I mean, just to, to be real about it, like people have I mean, I don't think different levels. I don't think she's a turf either, you know. Speaking of, I don't a, know. I've never heard her speak turfs, on it. Uh, that's been a big thing recently because uh, uh, Anne Rice, going back to her, she uh, 
had a very progressive view on trans people, which is ironically an ancient historical perspective, mm-hmm. which is that like in a lot of very old, old, old civilizations, like the shamans of the tribe, the wise, the wise sages that thought out that like could think outside the box and went, people went to for advice and had carried respect and power within the tribe were people without gender or who were gender fluid. Yeah. Like that was like part of the part of their way of thinking that gained them respect and prestige within their community because they were seen as having this like wisdom, this ability to see things from above the like the the animalistic urges of the genders. You yeah. know, like really when you're looking at gendered, a lot of behavior that we consider gendered behavior, you know, it is a lot of the more animalistic things that we do as people. And when you're like no gender or when you can kind of sh- shift back and forth that like they believed it gave you this sort of greater, wider perspective on things and made you wiser. And so she like thought that trans people were wonderful. She loved them. And uh, so there's this quote now that is basically what I just said, but a lot more concise and her actual words. And people are posting that in response to stuff that uh, turfy stuff that JK Rowling's is posting. Cause she's like, oh, she's really, she's on a tear it. right now. Yeah. She's like completely <clears throat> thrown off the, uh, her and Chappelle are really, really going yeah. for it. It's, do I, they, I just, just want to address it. I want to address it because what, like I addressed it when the special came out. They're being. <laughs> I was very quick to address it when the special came out. Like I literally watched the special and had a day to think about it and then talked about it on the podcast. And not only has my stand not changed, I'm like, getting upset at Dave Chappelle at this point. It's like, just fucking drop it, dude. It's a real bad look. It's a real bad look, man. Just stop. This is how you like kill your legacy. You know, he was the next Carlin, but he's not the next Carlin now. Now there is no next Carlin. We don't deserve another Carlin. The truth is his legacy is there. It's not going anywhere, but it changes his legacy. Like you can't have been at the center of comedy like he was and then pretend like that didn't happen. It did. But now you have to add this other thing to it. I'm Well, I'm just saying that like when it comes to like people don't – at the end of the day, the only people that care about – this kind of thing, the, like about including everybody, are people that actually care about the history of comedy and are like the average person is going to for like I think that Dave Chappelle's going to just he's just going to kind of fade away from the public. I just don't agree. I don't know. Like I mean, and I'm talking. Let, let me, let I'm me talking put it this far. Way. I'm talking like, like when we're dead. Yeah, like I, generations. I from would now. also say when the people who watch Carlin are gone. He's probably not going to be remembered super well either. I don't know. If I'm being honest, man. Well, and same I can, with prior. I can tell you who is now one of George Carlin's biggest fans currently is my 13-year-old. <laughs> she found some George Carlin on YouTube and has fully latched onto it and mm-hmm. is like, George Carlin is the funniest comedian that has ever lived. Oh, dude, I'm not going to question. Is like I love on George that. Carlin. She is on that like – which it makes me want to be like, I want to show you some other comedians too that are also good. <laughs> She's just like, why do I need to hear what they had to say? I've heard the best. I've heard George Carlin. <laughs> well, because that's not how comedy works. <laughs> <laughs> it's different points of view, it's right? Not like, yeah. I, I also, when I 
was around your daughter's age, started to really, really get into George Carlin and through high school, I had I didn't have all of his albums. That was almost impossible because, you know, an era where you had to be in a store where there where it was there. But I had a lot. I had a lot of his albums. And I think his three best albums were all in a row. And they were his 70s stuff. It was like uh, AMFM is the departure point where he becomes this counterculture figure. And then Class Clown is like the peak. And then Occupation Fool is right after that. And those three albums are amazing. And everything he does after that is funny. Diminishing Returns. But not even Diminishing Returns. It's not like he gets worse and worse. It's just like that's his peak. Like everybody's got a peak, right? His peak was in the 70s when he was doing that. And I think part of it, there's a pessimistic streak that runs through him. But like he's very hopeful and you can hear it in his comedy. And then I think after Occupation Fool, it just becomes pessimistic. Well, after his wife dies. Is that his what wife it was? died and he starts that is he goes into this phase where for the rest of his career he wore all black. Yeah. And uh, that's a good call. I never thought about that, but yeah. It's like and so then he <clears throat> dies and uh but like the thing for me is like he didn't do nothing really happened other than his material got darker after a significant event happened in his life. It affected the content of his material, but it didn't like affect his public sort of everything about his public persona. But like like look at Bill Cosby. He could have just been totally fine, gone down the history is like this clean comic. Okay. And this so but gonna... then this thing happened at the end of his career, which I know it was going on throughout his career. And so that's not really a perfect thing. But like with Chappelle, like this he was he made such a comeback and was really like building this like lasting legacy because he could have disappeared forever after Chappelle's show went off the air. He could have disappeared forever, made it back. And he came back strong with like some of what I thought was some of his best material that he'd ever done with that, like those first couple of specials that he put on Netflix. I were would say so good. I would say that first special in particular that he did when he came back, that might be his best stand up special. Yeah. I, I kind of vacillate between that one and killing him softly, like killing him softly. Just, oh, my God, that shit's funny. That That's the one where he's like talking about showing Pepe Le Pew to his kid. And sometimes you just got to take the pussy. And he's like, no. <laughs> and like talking about uh, like going to a neighborhood with like crack and stuff. And there's a baby selling crack on the corner and all that. And. That whole fucking special is so funny. It's just so goddamn funny. But the one he did when he returned to Netflix, too, like when he's talking about his levels of fame at like each time meeting O.J. Simpson, right? (laughs) Like, (laughs) like it's it's just so fucking funny. And it's what he did so well, which was like, here's the line. I'm putting my toe across this line. Well, and I'll even say that in that bit was his least. He did a joke about LGBTQ in that special. Yeah. And he was saying all, he was like saying all the letters. Oh, no, no. That's his like third Isn't special. That, oh, because like, so that joke. So I think he's got like five or six on that. I actually l- liked how that joke worked. The joke is not. Because the I joke isn't I don't think the attacking. joke is problematic. No. I, I think people perceived it as problematic because he was just talking about And it LBGTQ. feels like when he, after he did that joke, which I did not personally, we'll have to throw that in there, not personally find that joke to be like offensive to those groups. Like I didn't see the where it could be offensive to them directly. I do remember there being backlash for that joke and it almost felt like 
he's like, oh, guess I got you a little bit when I pushed you right there. Now I'm going to push that sensitive spot harder. I think – yeah. A lot of comics have it – Like have that, a, that first they one. They almost have like their pathological with their need to poke the sore spot. Yeah. When somebody is like, oh, they're like, oh, you know. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. And apparently he's been like being called out by transgender groups for decades. Like it's not anything new. But when he did that joke, to me it was – and granted I'm like straight male, so take it with a grain of salt. But I just saw it as like observational yeah. and not not stereotyping, not – but once again, maybe I'm missing something. I, I could but, totally I mean, see that. Then later but on – what happened was the <laughs> response was so overwhelming to it. He did – the fucking typical comedian thing. And it's not every comedian, but it is kind of the default setting of comedian where it's just like, oh, I can't say this. Guess what? I'm going to double down on saying it. So yep. he goes at it twice as hard in the next special, like like trying to clarify, but also like doing things he knows is going to piss people off. And then when they go against it, he makes it his entire special. Yeah. And it's like once he makes that his entire special, now it's he's like, just compl- dude, now he's just gone cr- way too Now he's far. just whining about it at this point. It's not even jokes anymore. But he's also – being very inflammatory in that in that as well. Like he is purposefully saying things that he knows is going to piss off everybody yeah. in that community. And now he's just like doing this tour where he's making sure everybody's hearing it. And I don't know if he subconsciously wants to tank his career or if he consciously wants to tank his career or if he's just like, this is a line that I'm just going to fight because like I should be able to say what I want. I don't actually know what angle he's taking on because I've read, a, I've read him talking about it in a million different things it just seems like he wants to say whatever he wants to say and i understand yeah. as he's as he's put it before he's a habitual line stepper but like he's i well, just let this me is one another... thing where i feel like it's legitimately like making people feel like shit and to, to that i'm just like come on man well and it also is like there is real violence every single day against trans people and like those people that are committing that violence, they're not being told by Dave Chappelle to commit that violence, but they are being told by Dave Chappelle, these people aren't worth caring about. And it makes it easier for them to then justify to themselves that they've committed violence against those people. It's just a it's a generic dehumanizing effect yeah. that that helps these other people justify their own action. And you're not like you're not responsible for the violence, but you are responsible for in helping enable it, you know, at a certain He's point. basically there's this big bonfire that's already going and he's just like Fueling. it's burning out of control and he's just throwing some more gas on. Yeah. It. Like he that's could what help he's doing. smother it. He's choosing to help fuel it. Yeah. That's that's what it is. Or like, by the way, you don't even have to help smother it. Just don't contribute to yeah. it. Like yeah. Like that's just be neutral. That's the now, thing that like drives me crazy. Well, but you about also it. need to be like Jim Jeffries. Let's like as another kind of parallel example, Jim Jeffries has told a lot of misogynistic jokes over the years. And he's even done the thing where like he uh, he'll be like he'll say the word cunt. Right. And then somebody will be like, oh, he's foreign. He doesn't un- he doesn't know that it's not appropriate in America. And they're even giving him a way out. And then he's just like, oh, I do know better. I just don't give a fuck. You know, like and he would joke about intentionally using that word because he knew how much it made white women in America just like seize with rage under their skin. And in later specials and he would tell these he would tell rape jokes 
and like the like one of them is actually like a story that let's and it's not, in story. Yeah, let's but not anyways, <laughs> in his later specials, he straight up is like, uh, I used to tell a lot of more jokes like this, and I don't anymore. He has found other ways to like to tell jokes and do his fucking job. You know, but he got real feedback from people saying like, hey, I get that you're just telling jokes and I get that even the way you're telling these jokes is funny. But like the reason why some people can't see the humor in what you're saying is like a real thing. It's not like them just not having a sense of humor or them like just being too sensitive. It's like the thing you're describing in a flippant way is like a source of real trauma. (laughs) these people and he heard it and he acknowledged it and to say that he completely took misogyny out of his sense of humor i wouldn't say that that's necessarily true but he's not directly damaging other people with this comedy anymore he's more like saying things that are misogynistic and then poking fun at that yeah which is a similar but not as not harmful in the same way and you know, he shows that you can also still be an edgy as fuck comic because he's still edgy as fuck, you know, and like the things, <laughs> the stuff that he says in his specials now, I don't, I'm not comfortable with repeating on here either, but not for the same reasons. <laughs> yeah. We should probably kill this here because I think we're going on a two hour podcast. <laughs> what? Oh, with the two with combined. Brandon too, okay. Yeah. Well, this was good and rambly. It's been kind of a dead week, really, when it comes down to it. Yeah, I think it was a fun conversation, though. I'm always about just shooting the shit sometimes. It's not like we weren't talking about pop culture and we didn't hit on touchstones, you know. We didn't talk about anything I thought I would talk about today. Turns out Anne Rice was a wealth of things to talk about. Yeah, almost bookended. Almost. (laughs) Take it easy, Anne Rice. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Follow us on Instagram at redwood underscore sound underscore labs, Facebook at facebook.com slash redwood sound labs, or email us at notsafernetwork at gmail.com. Not Safe for Network was created by Carl Borneman, Brandon Beardsley, and Alex Small. Produced by Alex Small. A podcast about the narrative and effective politics of war movies and their productions, too. Charles Horgan and Aaron Donaldson bring you a brand new podcast, The Real War Project. Dip in and out of subjects with Lauren and Sarah's irreverent points of view with the hilarious podcast, Dippers. Catch up with the week's pop culture news as well as reviews of new movies and shows, not to mention the occasional interview with Carl, Brandon, and Biggs on Not Safe for Network. Wrestlers wrestle, but sometimes they make movies too. This podcast lets you know how they do. Listen to Eric and Connor in all three seasons of Movies with Wrestlers. One by one, Jeremiah and Biggs break down influential movies and some wretched ones too in the podcast you can't miss, A Cosmic Void.